It's dark in here. Blessedness of rain, isn't it? That's wonderful. It's good to see you here as we uh, come on the day that fall fell upon us. I believe it's going to happen this week. <clears throat> and glad that you can be here worshiping with us, especially if you are here as a visitor. We're glad to have you here. And we do hope you'll come back to worship with us on many, many future occasions. Um, lots of announcements in the bulletin. I want to remind you especially that there's a brief called administrative board meeting uh, right after uh, the service today um, in this room right here, the Wesley Davenport classroom. Um, also want to remind our youth that their activities are a little different this night. We're meeting at the Pizza Inn for a dinner out. Um, that's at 6.30, all youth. And then they will meet their regular times on Wednesday night as well. Children will be coming for their usual uh, choirs and also the um, um, mission kids Bible study time to follow. And adult Bible studies are in full swing, so we're delighted that, uh, to have you come and be a part of these wonderful events happening this, this afternoon and evening. Um, this happened too late for being included in this week's bulletin and also too late to have a rose put in here this week, so it'll be next week, but um, Jessica and Chris Major uh, have won the baby derby. They were the first ones to have their baby. we still got some more, you know, out there waiting to uh, cross the finish line, but uh, anyway, little... Um, Thomas Christopher Major was born Friday, and we celebrate that, and we congratulate grandparents Dallas and Becky Thomas as well. And it's a, it's a growing church that can keep its nursery full, people. So uh, invite families with little children, and we'll have children all the way up. That will be good. Um, other announcements in your bulletin, hope you'll read as you have an opportunity to. And uh, let us now begin our time together in worship.
us affirm our faith in God using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. this time we'd like to invite the children to come forward to join Harriet Johnson for a few moments of shearing. seeing lots of those these days. Yeah. <laughs> are they all alike? No, they're all different, aren't they? Some of them are sparkly and some of them have different things on them. And some of them are mechanical. Uh, yes, and mechanical pencils. I wish my husband would use mechanical pencils. Then his shirt wouldn't get any uh, pencil lead smudges in his pocket. <laughs> he likes the uh, number two pencil the best. I bet these are number two. You think? Like that. Well, these pencils have all different colors. They're different sizes. They're, they're smooth and glittery. And, but what do they all have alike? What do they have in common? They're all pencils. And they all have lead. They all have erasers. Do you ever have to use the eraser on the pencil? Yes. My. Okay, you can erase the mistake with the pencil. My pencils make mistakes all the time, so I have to use the eraser a lot. These pencils sort of remind me of people. Now, people, well, some people have glittering personalities, don't they? Right. They can wear sparkles. Some are taller than others. Some may be rounder than others. So pencils and people are a lot of alike, but they don't have lead. People don't have lead. Yeah. Silly me. But they don't have erasers. So we can't be turned upside down and make our mistakes go away from time to time. gets more and more complicated, does it? Some Doesn't it? A little. Yes, some of them are. Well, what uncomplicates things for us? When we make mistakes, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just here to ask the question. Are you all not with all the right answers? That's right. You have all the right answers. But that's the point this morning, not a pencil point. But the, the point of our little message here is that, yes, we do have Jesus. God sent Jesus to die on the cross and save us from our sins. But what do we have to do? We have to ask him. And we have to really, really mean it in our hearts, don't we? So, and we, we can't forget that. Sometimes we just think, oh, I made this horrible mistake and it's, just, it's awful. I can't get over it. But we have to remember that Jesus is there to 
hear our prayer asking for forgiveness and, and God will forgive our sins for us because Jesus died on the cross. So we mustn't ever forget that. Let's thank God for sending Jesus to us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for these wonderful children who understand so well our, our help that you give us and the, the message that we try to teach them. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. Amen. We need to all rush out and get Ralph a mechanical pencil. Just to make Harriet's life so much easier. So we'll do that. Our uh, Old Testament lesson is from uh, Jeremiah 32, verses 1 through the first part of the third verse, and then verses 6 through 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anatoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord has said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of, in the, courtyard of, the, of the guard and said, buy my field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of, I love these names, don't you? Uh, Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In the presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deeds of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands and bring the punishment for the father's sins upon the laps of their children after them. O oh, great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. Here ends the lesson. Our responsive reading is Psalm 91 on page 
810. I invite you to turn to that selection and stand as you're able, and we'll share this passage together responsively. Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, For the Lord will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence and will cover you with pinions. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Because you've made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation. No evil shall For God will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. Because they cleave to me in love, I will deliver them. I will protect them because they are When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. Epistle reading is from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who, gives to, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do, so, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves 
as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here ends the lesson.
Let us unite our hearts in prayer. We are thankful, Lord, for the word that comes to us through the written word and also through song this day. We hear the words of Jeremiah offering hope to a people living through difficult days, the promise that life would one day return to normal and that there would be buying and selling of land and the production of farm uh, products and, and the harvest again in that land. We're thankful for that word to us as we face difficult times in our own lives and as a country. We're thankful that you are at work with us and through us to carry us through the difficult days with the promise that a better day is coming. We're thankful, too, for the admonitions from the apostle to young Timothy. We're especially mindful of the fact that it seems that we Christians operate more effectively for the faith when times are a little difficult for us. We hear wonderful things in some very dark corners of this world where the gospel is spreading and people are turning to Christ in some backward lands and in some places where it is not legal for them to embrace the cause of Christ. And yet we have it so easy in this country. Forgive us, Lord, that we don't use our prosperity effectively as some of our brothers and sisters seem to be using their poverty. And we pray, Lord, for them and for us that whether we are in prosperity or in, in poverty, we might always use what we have to advance the cause of Christ, remembering that you have us here as your ministers, your servants, your teachers, your shepherds. We look out in this community and we know that there are many who need shepherding. Use us, Lord, even as you are using our brothers and sisters in some very dark corners this day. We sang Christ for the world, we sing. We are still about that mission of lifting the name of Christ up everywhere we go. For we have found in Christ the hope we need for our lives. And we sincerely believe that he is the hope of the world. And we're thankful, Lord, that you send to us people in need because we need them to remember what's truly important in life. It calls us to look about us and see those Lazaruses in our midst and to reach out in love and concern to them, knowing that whenever we do it to the least of these, the brethren of Christ Jesus, we are doing it to him. We pray your blessings upon those this day in our church who are going through difficult days of loneliness or grief, or perhaps out of work or in job transition, those who are recovering from illnesses, those who have had surgeries. We, we pray your blessings upon these. And we're thankful, Lord, that we see in Jesus the heart of God. For Jesus went about the land healing all people that were, that were sick. So knowing that you are for us, we bring our loved ones to you for your healing touch. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us now worship God by giving.
be seated, please. <coughs> the gospel lesson is recorded on uh, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man died also and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Here ends the lesson. There once was a rich man named Dives. For him, life was easy, just a light breeze. While there at his gate, poor Lazarus did wait. No one helped, not the man nor his wives. Well, what better way to start a sermon than with a limerick? Well, actually, I'm sure there are a lot better ways to start a sermon. Don't you wish I'd used one? But uh, <clears throat> the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is an interesting story. It has a, uh, an interesting history as well. Albert Schweitzer heard this parable and concluded that Africa was the beggar lying at the gate of Europe. And that led him to go to work in Africa and to start his famous hospital there. The fact that there was something lacking in his lack of care for Lazarus and that that landed the rich man in eternal torment says something about what God considers of greatest importance. How we habitually treat our fellow human beings is a question that will be on our final exam. The rich man may not have failed in some things, such as attending church and making the required sacrifices at the temple or in studying scripture or praying, but his failure to see and care about Lazarus and those Lazarus represents earned a failing grade for the rich man. This is very important, Jesus said. It shows what we really believe. This parable is unique in lots of ways among the parables of Jesus. For one thing, it is the only parable that he told where one of the characters is given a name, a proper name, Lazarus. Now even though I have referred to the rich man as Dives, and you may have heard him call that, Dives is actually not the man's name. That word is a Latin word from the Latin Vulgate Bible, which simply means rich man. So much like the word Adam is uh, in the Bible, but it just really means the man. So some of the irony of this story is that 
an exceedingly rich man lived and died nameless, while a very poor, sick man lived and died, and God knew his name. It is like Jesus was saying, God wasn't impressed with that rich guy's wealth, but he took great notice of poor Lazarus. In this world that makes heroes of the rich and famous, <clears throat> even if they have done nothing to deserve that uh, spotlight being upon them, it is comforting to know that Almighty God does not judge people the way we humans judge one another based on wealth or success. God takes notice of the humble, the least among us, the poorest and the frailest. The only person to be given a personal name in Jesus' many parables was this poor sick guy named Lazarus. I wonder why that is. Well, maybe we can let our imaginations help us with that in a few minutes. But one of the main messages of this parable is that we might be surprised to learn that our outward circumstances in life do not represent God's punishment or reward upon us for how we have lived. We assume that is true. So many people seem to assume that health and wealth are proof that God is smiling upon them with favor and that financial hardship and illness must mean that God is unhappy with us. I remember one time the same man who told me that he knew that God loved him because he got a new job and a new home told me a year later that God had abandoned him and forsaken him because he'd lost that job and that home. Your wealth is not a sign of God's love for you, nor is your sickness a sign of disfavor with God. The sign that God loves you is a cross on the hillside known as Golgotha. The people who heard the parable that Jesus told that day would have been surprised to hear that the rich man ended up in hell while poor Lazarus, of all people, ended up in heaven. God surely doesn't judge people the same way that you and I do. The parable leaves us with more questions, I think, than it gives us answers. We all want to beg for more details. The rich man ends up in hell, and we'd like to know why. And Lazarus ends up in the bosom of Abraham, and we'd like to know why but we aren't told. Surely it wasn't just the man's wealth in life that caused him eternal punishment. Surely Lazarus didn't gain heaven simply because he suffered poverty and sickness in this life. Eternity has to be decided on something other than reversing the fortunes of life here on earth, although there is some comfort in knowing that people that seem to be shortchanged here on earth will find their compensation in eternity. But there can't be any real evil in wealth. But at the same time, Jesus repeatedly said that wealth is dangerous because it can lead people to destruction. Meanwhile, there is no inherent virtue in poverty. But it's more easily turned into virtue than wealth is. The fight over wealth has created plenty of hells here on earth. Perhaps we should not be surprised to learn that it can lead to eternal hells as well. Lazarus' name means God helps me. The poor guy knew that God was his help, that God cares. He had faith that that was true. Perhaps even in this parable, there's a veiled reference to trusting in God for salvation. Perhaps the rich man's wealth had so sheltered him from being aware that he had any needs that he wasn't aware he needed grace. It definitely had blinded him to the needs of others. Well, eternity rolls around and the men's roles are reversed. 
Lazarus is the one that ends up living in the gated community of heaven, while the rich man is just outside the gate in torment. In life on earth, Lazarus had longed for crumbs from the rich man's table. Now the rich man longs for one drop of water falling from the tip of Lazarus' finger upon his parched lips. The laws of physics on earth would have permitted the rich man to help Lazarus, but the laws of eternity have so separated heaven from hell that there was no way to get relief from Lazarus to the rich man. Since this is true, the rich man wants Lazarus raised from the dead and sent back to his brothers to warn them. Now there are scholars who believe that this is precisely why Jesus used the name Lazarus in this parable. The fact is that there had been a man named Lazarus from Bethany, the brother of Mary and Martha, who died and was buried for four days, and Jesus had raised him from the dead. There were many people with Mary and Martha grieving, and they were there to witness as Lazarus came out of the tomb alive. But there was no great revival that broke out after that. No great groundswell of repentance and faith, even after this great miracle. Many people were not convinced, even if someone rises from the dead, to quote Father Abraham. Perhaps Jesus was also prophesying that his own resurrection from the dead on Easter would not convince anybody to repent and return to God. They would not believe even if he would be raised from the dead. Well, Abraham answers this request that Lazarus be sent to his brothers by saying, you know, that really isn't necessary to send Lazarus back to your brothers. Your brothers already have the teachings of Moses and the prophets, and those writings tell people how they should live and believe. That should be enough. No, replied the rich man, perhaps meaning no, that isn't enough. My professor of preaching in seminary told our class that some scholars have called attention to the rich man's inference that Moses and the prophets are not enough to make people repent and be saved. As wonderful as the law of Moses is, as inspiring and instructional as the writings of the prophets are, they still fell short in providing salvation for humankind. The rich man knows that these were not enough to save him, and his brothers won't be saved by them either. Salvation will take something more, something like a risen Savior. It is the assertion of Christians that the old covenant, as wonderful as it is and was, could not carry us all the way to salvation. It was an agreement whereby God agreed to do certain things if we agreed to do our part. But all humans fail to live up to our part of the bargain. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. It is our failure, not God's, that caused the, un the old covenant to be unable to bring us into the presence of Abraham. This is why God established a new covenant with us. And this time, the success of that covenant depends solely upon God, and therefore it cannot fail. In Christ, God himself fulfilled the righteous requirements of the covenant. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Moses and the prophets were not enough for us, but God has done in Christ enough for us in his death and resurrection. One of the great mysteries to me when I was a child was understanding why every family wasn't like mine. Some folks didn't get up and go to church on Sundays and I thought that was kind of odd. Some folks didn't celebrate God's love uh, as we celebrated Christmas time. Some people didn't get excited about Easter, but our family and our church celebrated the birth of Christ 
we solemnly remembered the cross of Good Friday. We celebrated Christ's victory over death in the grave. Why doesn't everybody, I wondered as a child. Abraham had my answer. If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if God comes in person, even if someone rises from the dead. In spite of all the things that God has done for his people, we humans have always found a way to doubt instead of believe. God spared the lives of the firstborn of Israel. I'm sure some of them thought they were just lucky. God parted the Red Sea and the people crossed as if they were on dry land. And then they got to the other side and got hungry and said, we miss, we miss being slaves over in Egypt. Moses went up on the mountain to receive guidance of the Ten Commandments from God. Meanwhile, the people, saved by God, were busy making a golden calf to worship. Time and time again, our spiritual ancestors would become unfaithful to God and then cry out in fear as foreign armies would invade. And time after time, God would rescue his people. And once rescued, they would return to their sinful ways. So Abraham was right. Even after Lazarus was resuscitated and even after Jesus was raised from death, really only a very few repented and believed. It was business as usual for most folk. And so we continue to ignore the cries of our neediest brothers and sisters, creating places of torment on earth century after century. We should not be surprised if we contribute to the torment in the world to come. But some of us have heard the good news and have believed. We believe that God notices the Lazaruses of the world and that we should also. Nothing is more important, Jesus said. Maybe we cannot solve all the problems of the world, but we can see what we can do for the poor who are placed right at our doorsteps. We can treat those people like they are somebodies instead of nameless nobodies. And who knows? We just might have been caring for some heavenly messenger in disguise. As Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have enter entertained angels without knowing it. Amen. Thank you.